0: Today is a special day as we open our new building this morning. Hopefully you were able to go over there and check it out. It's a beautiful building. So thankful for our our people that work so hard to to help uh, produce such a beautiful building. I know Jason and Kara have spent tons of time over there doing the fine little last things to make it look beautiful. David also helping. But uh, next Sunday we're actually going to have a dedication of our new building Uh, Pastor Tom's out of town today, so we decided to wait till next Sunday, so we encourage everybody just to plan immediately after the service, we'll go over there, kind of like we did about this time last year, and prayed in that area, we'll go over there, enter our new building, and pray for that new building, how God's gonna use it in years to come, so we're so excited about, God bless us with that new building. Tonight is the big game, the Super Bowl, Uh, tonight the... Patriots will be the hated Patriots, in my opinion. But the Patriots will be going for another Super Bowl championship. It'll be three out of five. It'll be uh, there's no telling how many. I can't keep a maybe six that they've won if they win tonight. Brady, I, I used to hate Brady. Now I have to have respect for the dude. I mean, they, they win every year. Uh, I'll be playing the Rams, and I don't know about you. If you're watching the game, I'll be pulling for the Rams tonight. Um, Actually, probably a lot of you will be watching the games. According to the estimation, 110 to 115 million people will tune in tonight to watch the Super Bowl. Even if you're not a Super Bowl or a football fan, you might still tune in to to watch the commercials or the halftime or who knows what. But it is really a national event, the Super Bowl is. I was reading uh, about the food that will be consumed tonight. 28 million pounds of chips will be eaten tonight, 1.3 billion chicken wings, 8 million pounds of guacamole, Uh, tonight 12.5 million pizzas will be sold, Uh, a bunch of them to our youth fruit, by the way. Um, I mean, Super Bowl Sunday is a big day. Matter of fact, Americans consume more food on on Super Bowl Sunday than any day in, in the whole year except for Thanksgiving Day. We eat more on Thanksgiving. But Super Bowl Sunday is a close second. So I think it's, it's safe to say that the Super Bowl has an impact on American culture. I think that's a fair statement. This morning, we're going to look in the Bible to a super showdown that really blows away the Super Bowl as far as importance on society, on the culture of the day. Now, the Super Bowl, we said it's important today to a certain point. But this was a huge showdown. This had huge impact on all the culture. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn, we're going to look in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 to a very familiar story, a story that you probably heard before, you may know well. But we're going to look at it again today. 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to have the... Um, The verses on screens also as you follow along, but uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to to look along as we read along this passage. And before we uh, dive into God's Word, let me go to the Lord in prayer. God, today as we look at your Word, I pray that you would help us to understand, you'd help us to, uh, to just hear from you today as you speak through your Word. Lord, we thank you that the Word of God is your Word and that you'll teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we actually dive into our passage today, I want to kind of set the stage, set the background for our story. Um, Israel is at a really low, sad state at this time when we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's king is one of the main characters we're going to look at today, by a guy by the name of King Ahab. Um, if you look through First and 2 Kings, basically you'll have a recording of our different kings that served in Israel and Judah. And it's interesting, you had some good kings and you had some really bad kings. Well, Ahab is the bottom of the barrel as far as our kings. Matter of fact, the scripture says this in 1 Kings 16. The scripture says, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. This guy was an evil guy, he was a bad king. And he made a lot of bad decisions. One of the bad decisions he, he made was he married a, uh, a wife of a foreign king, the king of Tyre. The girl's name was Jezebel. She did not help King Ahab at all. She actually worshipped uh, a god named Baal. And whenever he took her as his wife, he embraced Baal also. And started worshipping this, this pagan god. Okay? And I thought about this as I was studying this, uh, not really going along with our message, but kind of a side message, because I do youth ministry and I speak a lot to young people. But young people and, and our college students and singles, I thought about it as I was reading this, the impact of a spouse can have on your Christian walk. The importance of marrying somebody that loves Jesus is very critical. To date Christians, to marry Christians, is critical. Now, I'm not going to say that you can't follow Jesus if you marry somebody that's not a believer. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this, it's much, much, much more difficult to follow Jesus. Some could probably share a testimony today of the struggles to follow Jesus because their spouse is not interested. We see that Ahab took this foreign wife and it brought him nothing but misery. And he embraced her gods. And God, the sovereign, real God, was upset at Ahab. Because Ahab believed in God, but now he had embraced Baal and worshipped Baal. Now, who was Baal? Baal was believed to be the god of fertility. He was the one that brought all the, the rain to the crops and helped everything to grow. He was also known as the storm god. So, if they wanted good crops... They better worship Baal and be faithful to Baal. So that's what they did. So we have King Ahab over here. But we also have another main character. It's the prophet Elijah. If you know anything about Elijah, Elijah is actually different than Pastor Tom last week. Talked about Elisha. Now this is a different one. This is a different prophet. Elijah. Elijah's one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, Elijah was the only prophet... That was around at the time of this story. In 1 Kings 18. The only prophet of Yahweh God. Because what had happened was. Jezebel had decided she was going to get rid of all of them. All the prophets. And she had prophets of God slaughtered. And others were in hiding at this time. And Elijah's all by himself left. As a prophet of God. Elijah comes to Ahab. And he tells Ahab that no dew or rain is going to fall on the land until he gives word that it will rain again. Okay? Now, I think about this, we're trying to set up our story here. He says there's no dew in the morning. It wouldn't be wet. No rain. It's going to happen again until I give word that it's going to do that. Now, think about that. God, I mean, God doesn't do things accidentally. Who was Baal? That was supposed to be the God that brought rain. He was the storm God, right? And right in the face of that, God tells his prophet, you go tell Ahab, it's not going to rain again until your prophet Elijah gives word to say it's going to rain again. Three years it has not rained now. That brings us to our story today. It is in 1 Kings 18, and we're going to start in verse 17. This is the first time that Ahab and Elijah have seen each other since he gave the word, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. Look what it says, verse 17. When, Elijah saw, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, it is you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baal's. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay? So here it is. Here's the showdown. They see each other. Ahab says, there you are, you troubler of Israel. Elijah says, "No, no, it's not my fault that it's not raining. It's you in your father's house because you've abandoned God's commandments. Instead, you're worshiping Baal. So, he, so Elijah says, Here, Here's what I want to do. I want us to get everybody, all of Israel, to come together at Mount Carmel. I want everybody to come. Because we're going to have a showdown to find out who the real God is. Now, just to help you realize, he says, Bring all Baal's prophets, all 450. I'm going to be the only prophet of God there. You can have the 450. We'll go to Mount Carmel, okay? And Mount Carmel was a normal place for Baal worship. That's where they went to worship Baal. Now, they had once worshiped the, the real God there, Yahweh God, but they had torn down the altar to the real God there, and they had built an altar to Baal instead. So it's almost, like, it's almost like Elijah said, Hey, we'll go to your home turf. You go there all the time to worship anyway, we'll go to Mount Carmel. I'll go. If, if I'm using the analogy of the game again. It's your home field. We're the way team. We'll go there. I'll go by myself. You got 450 of your prophets. We'll go to your home turf and we'll have to show them. Now, if Las Vegas would have been around back in the day, they'd been putting the odds at like incredibly stacked against Elijah and against God, right? But it's amazing, is it not? How many times we see in the Bible where everything looks like it's stacked against God? But God comes through. God thrives when he's an underdog, I believe. It's all right. So here's what we see. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. He did exactly what he said. And I think the reason he did that, he's like, man, I just want to see it rain again. Whatever this guy says, let's just do whatever he says. We'll get everybody together. But we just need some rain. Could you imagine three years I mean, I remember when I was a boy, we'd have a drought and stuff, and my dad loved the garden, and we lived in Mill Valley. He called it Dry Valley. He said, man, it's tough here in Dry Valley because we'd go like three weeks without rain. it had been three years, no rain. Can you imagine? They're getting desperate. Verse 21, very critical verse, look what it says. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. You see what's happening here? He says this. Everybody's gotten together at Mount Carmel. He says, listen. If God is God, follow him. But if Baal is really God, follow him. Don't mix the two together. That's what the people were doing. They knew about God they had heard about their forefathers. They knew about God's deliverance from Egypt and the Red Sea. But they had kind of just put that away and embraced Baal instead. Baal seemed more practical, more uh, just helpful of the day. So they embraced Baal instead of embracing God. But Elijah says, don't be a fence setter. Don't be lukewarm. Choose. If it's God, choose him. If it's Baal, choose him. And it's interesting what the Bible says. The people said nothing. They said nothing. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about this. Could this be said today about our culture in 2019? Could this even be said maybe about the church at times? About we, we, we believe in God, but are our heart's fully committed there? Are there other things that have taken our devotion and our commitment? The people it said said not a word. I thought about that. I thought about how silence is the easiest way to be noncommittal. Just to not say or do anything is the easiest way in today's culture too. Just to not commit to anything. You know, I'm afraid that kind of being uncertain is almost like a virtue today. It's not a negative. It's almost like a virtue. It's it's imploded to question everything and believe in nothing. That's kind of applauded today in our culture. Again, the people of Israel, they had this knowledge of God. They had this belief in God. But they were serving Baal. They were serving him. Verse 22 says that Elijah said to the people, I, even I only... I'm left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 4.50. So we set the stage again, 4.50 to 1. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon, you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah lays out the showdown. He says, we're going to build two altars. You'll get a bull. I'll get a bull. We'll cut them in pieces. Put it on the wood. they an the altar. We'll both call for our God. And the God that answers with fire. That is truly God. And the Bible says, and the people answered, that is well spoken. We agree. That sounds like a good plan. Now think about it again. Here... here Think about, Baal is the storm god. To fire, to have fire from heaven, should not be any problem for him, right? I mean, he's in control of the lightning and everything. This should have been an easy challenge for Baal. Elijah just made it easy. Verse twenty-five. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull, and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So basically what Elijah says, all right, instead of us doing this at the same time, you guys go first. There's a bunch of you guys, there's 450, y'all go go first. You know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about, um, if you know much about the NFL, they have an overtime rule that's really criticized a lot of times. Uh, if a team gets the ball first in overtime, and they get the ball and they go down and score a touchdown, the game is over. The other team does not even get the ball. Now, that happened two weeks ago. The, uh, the Patriots went in overtime with the Chiefs, won the coin toss, got the ball. Brady led the Patriots right down. They scored a touchdown. It was a game. Chiefs never even got the ball. A lot of people would like that rule to be changed. But here's the point. Elijah says, Here, I won't let you have the ball first. (laughs) Y'all go ahead. And y'all realize that if they worship Baal and Baal comes through sending fire, Elijah's a dead man. He's dead. And all the people are going to serve Baal. But he basically says, "You, You guys go ahead and go first. There's a bunch of you guys. Go ahead. I'll sit over here and wait till you're done. You go first. Verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them and prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. All right, let's stop there for just a second. So you get this picture, all right, they start early in the morning and until noon, they're calling out for Baal. Bell, please, answer us. And it's interesting that the Bible says that they limped around the altar. Limped. I was thinking about, you know, God wants us to have the kind of relationship with Him we're running to Him. I'm afraid too often when our relationship with God is divided between God and other things that we love. All we do is limp with God. We don't run to God. Our life and our walk with God is nothing but limping. You know, I I used to play some ball and stuff, but I can remember one time I I hurt my hamstring pretty bad, and I was trying to still play softball, and uh, all I could do is limp from one base to the other. That's the most frustrating thing ever. Limping is frustrating. I think we get a picture here. That's what's going on. These prophets are limping around this altar begging Baal to answer them. But nothing. Nothing's happening. Look what it says, verse 27. I love this right here. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. This is the first recorded trash talker ever, okay? He starts mocking them. Look what he says. I lost my place. He said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is in a, on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Do you hear what Elijah said? He is just totally making fun of him. You got, you're being too quiet. He's probably on a journey, and he's kind of got a little further away. Yell a little louder. Or or maybe he's in a bathroom and and you need to to, to get his attention. Or maybe he's just asleep. And if you guys would yell a little louder, I bet you he would finally hear you. Continue on. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice; no one answered; no one paid attention. Wow! You get this scene? I mean, they're cutting themselves. It says that was part of their custom. Apparently, to do that. I mean, I just see this ugly picture here, limping around, crying out for bail. Nothing. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. It had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as wood, contained two seeds of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran a ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah's trying to make sure, hey, you guys realize there's no tricks I got up my sleeve here. We're going to soak this thing down. And they soaked it. They did it a second time. They did it a third time so much that the trench that they had built around the altar was filled now with water. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of oblation, let me stop right there, that was the time of the evening offering, which was probably at 3 o'clock. I thought it was so interesting. Again, God doesn't work by accident. We think of the Old Testament being separate from New Testament. The time, they had a daily time that they would offer an offering, 3 o'clock. What time did Jesus die? He died at 3 o'clock. I don't think that was by accident. God works. He worked through the Old Testament. He continued to work the life of Jesus. I thought that was so cool thinking about that. It's at that time. It's time to offer the sacrifice. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you are, know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord is God. He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, don't get caught up too much in that last verse. Because sometimes we read it today and we think, Oh my goodness, Elijah killed those guys? Remember, Israel... Was a theocratic society. In other words, God was king, and when people did something against the real king, they deserved to die. Okay, so I'm not trying to say that anybody doesn't worship God today. That we have the right to go. Definitely not. This is a totally different time. That's what God was saying at that time. But do you understand what's going on here? God is showing that He's not an idol. He's not some tradition. He's not some symbol or some force. He's a living God. He is the king. And he is control of all things. And listen to me. Just as much as God, Yahweh, showed that he was king in that day, he still is today. He still is today. It might seem like things are bleak at times. Do you not think things seem bleak for Elijah? Do you not think that you think our culture's gone kind of pagan at times? What about Elijah's culture? So much worse. But God was king. And he showed that he was king. One thing I just want to point out before I talk about the application real quickly is I thought it's so interesting. When I read this, i studied this so many times and I never really picked up this and uh I saw this, actually John Piper talked about this. And he talked about it in, in that verse 37 in his prayer. His prayer was, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this day you may, uh, they may know that you, O Lord, are God. And then the last part, and that you have turned their hearts back. That God was the one that turned their hearts back. The people just didn't decide to turn their hearts back. God turned their hearts back to him. God changed our hearts. And God is still in a heart-changing business today. God can change hearts. Real quickly, three applications I'm going to make from this story. The first one I've already said, but God's king. He is king. No matter what our culture may say, no matter what uh, brilliant people may come up with theories to prove some other way that the world was created, or no matter what, God is king, and he'll one day prove in your life, if he's not already, that he is king. Second thing, and this is the most important, I think, for Nias, the worst place to be spiritually, the worst place, is to have a divided heart. That's the worst place you can be spiritually. The worst place you can be spiritually is to believe in God and to come to church and to live the rest of your life like it doesn't exist. And people do that. I talked to my son school about, about this this morning. I didn't know if I was going to mention it. I am going to mention it, though. I, I'm confused about some things. This is what I'm confused about. We live in a Bible Belt, right? We live in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I think if I asked you guys, would you say this is the most uh, Christian part of our nation, you'd probably say yes. You'd probably say compared to Northeast, absolutely. Compared to the uh, Northwest, oh my goodness. Compared to California, compared to a lot of places, yes. And I told them, I, I, I told my Sunday school class, which by the way, I was the only person that, that gets the newspaper in my Sunday school class. That made me feel real old. By the way, nobody reads the paper anymore. I still read the paper. I'm old school. But I read this week in the business section that, and, and it just caught my attention. We're we're the Bible belt, right? Everybody's practicing Christianity here. That Chattanooga was number six in the nation in student loans that were delinquent, that were beyond 90 days overdue. That Chattanooga was number six in all the cities in the nation, percentage wise, in delinquent loans. Then I looked through there and nine out of ten were in the South. Nine out of ten in the Bible belt. Started doing a little more research and found out that, of course, Tennessee is number one in the nation in bankruptcy and have been for a while. So then I thought, well, man, I'm just going to, I got to research this a little bit more. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't do a comparison to, to some major cities, to Chattanooga, wouldn't let me do it, but to Nashville. So I did a comparison, Nashville to New York. You know what? In the eight major crime categories, per 100,000 residents, so if you do it by your population per 100,000, Nashville has greater crime than New York City in all eight of those categories. Six out of eight more than Los Angeles. I thought, what? Wait a minute. Nashville? Tennessee? Lifeway headquarters? Southern Baptist Church? Or Independent Baptist Church? Or some kind of church on every corner? Where is the disconnect? The disconnect, I believe, is people that say they believe in God and people that really have had their lives changed. Because I don't believe if we really know God, we can live like the world. I don't think we can. Are we going through our lives limping alone spiritually? Are we totally, fully committed to God? The last thing, last application, I've already mentioned it too, but we need God to turn our hearts back to Him. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts back to Him. Because I'm telling you what, America is far from God, but listen to me, the American church is too. American church is far from where God wants us to be. And we need God, we need Him desperately to turn our hearts back to him.